Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard, and throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, and welcome to the sixth series of the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast, where we'll be exploring the theme of gender and health. Gender refers to the socially constructed norms, behaviours and roles associated with different gender identities. And as a social construct, it's hierarchical and produces inequalities which impact people's health particularly as it intersects with other social and economic inequalities. Addressing gender inequality is essential to fulfil everyone's right to health. And in this series, we're going to explore how communities can be engaged in gender and health research to help empower marginalised groups, challenge discriminatory attitudes and strengthen gender responsive and inclusive health service provision. I'm B. Eggard, a PhD student from Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and my co-host for this series is Dr. Wessam Mansour, a postdoctoral research associate also from the Liverpool School. Wessam, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I am Wessam Mansour, a health system researcher at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Uh, I'm working on two projects, uh, Perform to Scale, which is a participatory action research to strengthen uh, health workforce performance at district level in Ghana, Uganda and Malawi and Rebuild for Resilience, which is also a participatory action research to strengthen health systems in fragile and shock-prone settings in uh, Nepal, Myanmar, Sierra Leone and Lebanon. Uh, I lead the Gender Equity and Justice Working Group in Rebuild for Resilience, and I learn it uh, about gender and equity and how to apply those concepts to develop gender equitable and inclusive health systems. So uh, I'm really happy to join you today co-hosting this series. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Wassam. So we're very lucky today to be joined by Dr. Sarah Parker, Reader in Development Studies at Liverpool John Moores University, and Professor Madhusudan Subedi from the Patan Academy of Health Sciences and Tribhuvan University in Nepal, who will be talking to us about their work on women's reproductive health and dignity in Nepal, with a focus on understanding menstrual stigmas and engaging with communities to challenge practices of menstrual exclusion. Thank you so much for joining us today, and please could you both give a little introduction to yourselves for our listeners. Sarah, would you like to go first? Hi, so yes, Sarah Parker here from Liverpool John Moores. I'm a region development studies um, with a background in geography development studies and currently in sociology. Um, and I've been working in Nepal for 30 years. Uh, my PhD was based there. Um, I volunteered and lived in a remote village in the Annapurna region in 1986. And then throughout my career, I've visited Nepal over 40 times conducting uh, participatory action research. And my focus has always surrounded gender and education and also health. And more recently, um, I'm the principal investigator for a British Academy GCRF funded um, project called Dignity Without Danger. Um, And I'm working with my co-I today and presenter here, Adu Sudan. Um, And so, yeah, really looking forward to having a conversation today. Great. Thanks so much, Sarah. And Madhusudan, could we hear a bit about you as well, please? Uh, thank you very much. I'm uh, Madhusudan Subedi, currently professor uh, of Public Health Pattern Academy Health Sciences, a not, not-for-profit university. And then I'm also affiliated to uh, Trivon University Center Department of Sociology from 1996. From 2005 onwards, 
we have been collaborating with Sarah Parker. Then my area of expertise is uh, medical sociology, medical anthropology, and uh, population health, and gender equity, and social inclusion, and social transformation. For the last 25 years, I have been focusing on the social determinants of health, health equity, justice, and then what can be done uh, while collaborating with the local people, local NGOs, and just uh, we have been focusing much more on academic work, but not how can we change the society. That has been the, my focus on last few years. Unfortunately, we are working together with Sarah Parker, the Dignity Without Gender Project, and this is a kind of a collaborative project with three universities, two universities from uh, UK, um, Liverpool John Moore University and SOAS, and then Tribune University. I'm, I'm leading on behalf of Tribune University. Great. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. And you both provided a little bit of background to the kinds of projects that you work on. But I wondered if we could hear in a little bit more detail about the sort of approaches that you use in your projects around menstrual stigma and menstrual exclusion. Yeah, so over my 30 years of working in Nepal, I've always had collaborative participatory action research at the heart of what I've done. Um, I started off looking actually initially in the early 90s at conservation and the Annapurna Conservation Area Project. And my PhD then introduced Action Aids Reflect, an informal education programme into the village. And through visiting the local level um, and getting this non-formal education project introduced into um, the Annapurna Cyclist region, had a focus on gender and particular in education at the beginning of my research journey. Um, and then this led on to a photography project um, with the local people in Cyclist, where people took photographs of their own lives to represent their own reality. Um, and I've also conducted research over my career on ageing in Nepal and quite a lot around gender-based violence, including the impact of the earthquake. So this project, Dignity Without Danger, is kind of pulling together that experience and the networks um, that I had. And it arose out of some research that I did um, with Rose Catring and Sapnavista at Liverpool John Moores. And we wrote about the earthquakes impact, particularly on gender and women. And one of the things that came out was that their, um, their menstrual stigmas and taboos um, were impacting on them in, even more so post-earthquake because of, they were more vulnerable, especially because of the exclusion um, from spaces, which made them vulnerable to feeling unsafe and, and sexual abuse and attacks by others. Um, and at the same time, NGOs in Nepal, I'm also the chair of the British Nepal Academic Council currently, but I'm also a committee member of a network called Brango, which is a network of NGOs in the UK who all work in Nepal. And NGOs were asking us to evaluate the impact of handing out rewashable sanitary pads. So when the earthquake happened, um, dignity kits were handed out by many NGOs. There's a very strong network in Nepal of um, particularly NGOs, but also um, activists and health workers and from lots of different disciplines, all working to try to promote a more um, equitable society. Um, and the, one of the responses was to provide menstrual dignity kits so that people had rewashable menstrual pads to manage the menstruation. So that led on to a small British Academy project um, where we spoke to many NGOs um, and we wrote blogs about that, which I'm sure we can share with the audience. Um, and it led to this bigger project um, 
where the dominant narrative of Nepal and menstruation is very much about the far west of Nepal, where people are confined to cow sheds, where the project that myself and Madhu are looking at is in all seven provinces. Um, and it's very much using ethnographic, immersive techniques. Um, and I can let Madhu explain a bit more about that process. Um, but we want to have an overview of the whole of Nepal to try to capture the complexity um, of how menstrual stigmas and taboos are not just being confined to certain spaces and in particular to challenge the dominant narrative of the cow shed. Um, I'm sure anyone who knows anything about Nepal, even if you do a Google search, um, if you put menstruation in Nepal in, all of the articles focus around um, the deaths, of, the very tragic deaths of people, in, uh, particularly in cow sheds. But that's only part of the practice and what we're trying to do is look at the complexity and like Madhu said, working with NGO partners and, and networks in Nepal, which is so important for action research to have those depth of contacts. From this particular project, all seven provinces of Nepal, from very east to the far west of Nepal, so that we have been able to collect the information from different castes and ethnic groups. Uh, and then we found that there is a great variation on these uh, menstrual exclusion practices. And then there are certain variables which can influence the variation, not only the among uh, the provinces, but among different castes and ethnic groups, religious groups, cultural groups, religion, but also within the, uh, within the groups. So we followed rapid ethnographic methods and there were six team members. And then uh, these six group members were tr uh, given training, to make much more familiar with the data collection tools. Then one group of uh, team led the eastern part of Nepal and another group of team led the western part of Nepal. Uh, these were all female team members because it uh, in Nepali context, it is very difficult to discuss about these uh, menstrual issues with male, uh, male persons or male researcher, I would say because of the fact that this is the uh, menstruation is taken as a private matter of the female. This is not be discussed within the family. And then this has not been the male's concern. So uh, we decided that it would be a good idea to, uh, to train the female researchers so that they would go over there and discuss with them. Our research team went to the field, stayed there at least seven to 10 days in the village and discuss with them formally and informally so that they were able to collect the real life situation of the people, what happens during the um, uh, menstruation, what do they do, what is the reaction of the people, what do they eat during the menstruation, what are the certain preferred activities, where do they sleep, and then what are the certain restrictions during menstruation, and what has been the kind of uh, change over the period of time. We have collected a lot of information interviewing more than 200 uh, people from different backgrounds. The menstruating women, the political leaders, traditional healers. We are analyzing all the data and we have been able to present some of our preliminary findings in different uh, conferences in, in Nepal. At the same time, uh, Sarah will mention more about it uh, uh, the women have a very good kind of um, song about menstruation and they have been encouraged 
by uh, sharing their ideas with the political leaders and getting feedback. And then we have been making some documentary like kind of small videos so that that will be also effective for the transformation of this kind of practices uh, in Nepali society. Great. Thank you so much. There's so much interesting points that you've both made there. Wesson's going to ask more about those differences you were talking about across Nepal and how those practices change in the next section. Um, but it's really interesting to hear about how you combine those um, ethnographic approaches, participatory approaches, your broad stakeholder engagement. It's really fascinating to hear about that. So I'm going to pass over to Wesam now, who's going to ask you some more detailed questions um, about your work in Nepal. So over to you, Wesam. Uh, okay, so now we want to learn more about the practice of uh, Shobadi and what is this practice? How does it uh, impact the lives of women and the girls in Nepal? The, it's, uh, its impact is very immense, I would say, immense impact. For example, in the past, the menstruating girls were not allowed or discouraged to go to schools. So dropout rate was very high during the menstruating days. One impact is that. Other impact is very uh, painful impact, I would say, is they were not allowed to take nutritious food, I would say, um, for example, milk, right? So during the menstruation, they are, you know, they are weak. So that makes them unhealthy. And then second is uh, the menstruation is described in such a way that they are completely polluted. They are not allowed to touch males. They are not allowed to touch cows. They are not allowed to enter to the kitchen and then enter to the room. They are supposed to sleep outside the home. That makes them completely stressful situation. And then we could say the kind of a depressive situation. And not only that, uh, there are real life uh, scenario that uh, some of the menstruating women who had slept outside their home had been raped. So the community people also looked them a kind of inferior, polluted, so that the impact of in personal life, social life uh, has been very immense, I would say. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to add to that that um, it's so complex as well. You can't really talk about a Nepali woman and generalise. And I think the research we've done going to all seven provinces, looking at different religious um, beliefs, you know, religion does play a role in terms of the texts and, and the way that that's passed on. But then there's also a multiple range of local gods um, that, that have their own rules and regulations. And one of the things we found is it's not as fixed. You know, change has happened over time um, in some places more than others. And in some communities, it's about seven days, four days is the minimum for the restriction. In some places, it's seven. In some places, it was even more. And the local people had to go to the local religious leader to so that he could negotiate with the local god and gods to reduce that time for them. So it's not as fixed. There is some change. There's also generational changes. We can see from our research that some of the younger generations are starting to break those traditions and challenge them as there's more education. But they still also at the same time want to respect their elders and their these deeply held beliefs. Um, so I think that's really important to note. 
Um, and through, um, we've used lots of different techniques in the research, as well as the ethnographic, we've used art to engage with people and collaborative filmmaking. And through the filmmaking, um, the fact that when women can touch and not touch certain plants, sometimes they can touch dry plants and they can go and collect wood and climb trees, but they can't touch wet plants. So it's kind of, um, there's the fluidity within it as well. And also when you have a baby, um, there's different restrictions around the blood that's associated with birth. And then also you have the menopause um, and being maybe free of these restrictions. That's interesting. Uh, thank you. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, still, it's disappointing in a way to see that still such practices are there uh, somewhere in the world. But uh, I can see it's like a cultural thing. But uh, from where does this stigmas, uh, menstrual stigma and others, come from? I think uh, the menstrual stigma come from different directions. For example, the religious values and practices in Hinduism, in the religious texts, it has been written that you are not allowed to enter to the home and you are not supposed to worship the gods and goddesses. You are not supposed to touch males. Many of the issues comes from religious texts. And more than that, many of other issues come from uh, local, locally created norms and stories and values. For example, in the area where this menstrual exclusion is very much rigid in western part of Nepal, if the menstruating female does not follow the norms or certain rules, then their children may be, uh, their children may die or their family member may be sick, their cattle will die and then rain will not come or their harvest will be very poor. If you, you know, um, say this kind of history, it would be a very difficult for the even educated woman to challenge the, uh, this whole, uh, you know, storage. So I would, I would say this is kind of structural violence has been there because of the, these norms and values and stories have been sharing from grandmother to mother to children and uh, grandchildren. So this kind of history has been play a very important role to follow of the traditional menstrual exclusion practices and taboos uh, in, in different parts of Nepal. And then other stories uh, mentioned or uh, are said by the local healers. Local healers are very powerful peoples. They are, they are also gatekeepers. They are uh, also kind of uh, knowledge producers. Whatever the knowledge is, be some knowledge are good and some are really harmful. Uh, practices. So uh, these local healers are also uh, helping to continue this kind of traditional practices. Yeah. And just to pick up on that, basically a, a menstruating woman can be blamed for any misfortune. So through the research we found that, you know, if there's a hailstone and the weather's changing, which, you know, probably due to climate change, they people looking for local solutions can can blame a menstruating woman. So on one hand, for me, it's almost like it means that you, you're a danger to your community and society and therefore follow the restrictions that are in place. But with the religious aspect, um, many of the stories come from um, the, the religious texts within Hinduism, but you will also find Buddhists who, the monks and the nuns that we've interviewed as part of the research project have said, we don't have the restrictions, but our participants who are Buddhist 
have adopted the practices of the wider community. So sometimes it's really hard and people don't actually always know why. They just are following, as Madhu said, the traditions and norms that have been passed on to them. Um, and it's often mothers and grandmothers who are passing this, this knowledge down. And that stresses why it's really important to work with the wider community and not just focus on education. I think education really is at the heart of a lot of change, but you have to challenge the wider structures in society as well. And that's, that is a, it's a long process and one which will take time. Thanks, Sora. Okay, um, I know we have touched upon the variations across Nepal and working across seven uh, different provinces, but do you want to add anything about how do exclusion beliefs and uh, practices vary across the country? And I'm interested more to know if the new generations are also uh, following the same practices and even with increasing the level of education, uh, still there is, it's the same across the country. Uh, one of the important things I should share is how do the family members take this issue, whether they, they take issue seriously or not. Many family members, especially males, they think that this is the matter of women. This is the private matter. We should not discuss this matter with the, at the community level. So they, when designing all these policy and planning, the male's part has been completely ignored till now. So if we want to change the society, and basically because of the whole this patriarchal system in Nepali society, then we have to engage males. If we discuss more about this matter, then we can, uh, we can change the mindset of people. There has been certain um, important contributions of the uh, activists and then uh, police persons and they have destroyed the, the cow sheds. Then what is happening over there is, okay, people are destroying cow sheds today and they are they go outside then the people start to make couches and then poor level of couches than before so the mindset is very important destroying couches and then enforcing laws to the to the community has not worked in some places so the mindset of the people ideas of the people and discussing this the menstruation is a natural phenomenon physiological phenomenon and then other important issue is people are very much afraid of, uh, you know, uh, God. So uh, if we say that even you can visit to the temples and offer food or kind of things to the gods and goddess, they will not uh, hear the activist ideas. So uh, we have to find out what are the key issues that play a very important role uh, in social stigma and discrimination and life of women. The, we have to find out the key issues and that uh, we should start to change these key issues. And later on, one by one, we'll be uh, able to see the change. Overall, we can see the kind of social transformation. We should not be that pessimistic, but uh, the level of transformation has been very slow. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. I think that's why the research that we've done is interdisciplinary and holistic and that's much needed both in research and in the response so the social structures and the culture that Madhu talks about but also geography can play a role as well so one of the things we're doing working with the menstrual health network 
GI said the German um, Development Agency and our lead partner, Global Action Nepal, is we've pulled together all the NGO resources and we're working with the uh, curriculum department and the government who are revising their sexual and reproductive health curriculum at the moment. And we're trying to make the resources more creative and interactive, but respond to the different local context because it's so based at the local level that what you want to do is analyse your own menstrual practices and compare them to somebody else and then talk about it. So talking about your practices and sharing that knowledge. So it's really important that people learn that they have their practices, but not everybody in Nepal follows the same practices and they can be challenged. From my perspective, it's really difficult to sort of critique religion because people also have the right to have their own religious beliefs, knowledge and customs. So it's how can you change those customs without upsetting the older generations? And that's a big challenge. And Madhu also touched on the fact that there are policies in place that criminalise being excluded to the cow shed. But when they've been broken and taken down and destroyed, the women have sometimes then been more vulnerable because they've had to sleep outside because they still personally, even when in some cases their husbands have said come inside the house, but they are so scared of bringing bad luck on their family that they've been sleeping in more vulnerable positions outside in forests. So the solution has to be contextual. I think that's one thing which is a big challenge. But like I said, there's a big network of people um, tackling and advocating for change. Many young people, I think you touched on youth, I think young people are starting to challenge them. But also within a family structure, if you live with your extended family, um, when you then move into your husband's house, you may have to adopt different strategies depending on which household you live in. So, um, yeah, we have a lot to share and unpick in terms of the complexity. Thanks, Sara. Uh, thanks, Madhu. Uh, that's really interesting. And uh, I know we have talked about the um, the role of engaging uh, f- uh, males in the families, activists and the community leaders. But were there any efforts to engage uh, the wider community uh, to tackle the issue of menstrual stigma in Nepal? And Can we reinforce the idea that uh, women and the girls are the active agents of a change in challenging these practices and stigmas? One of the things that we're going to be sharing um, very soon uh, is we've interviewed 34 menstrual activists um, out of a much wider network. And out of those, six are men. Um, Three of them are making products, washable pads and a real advocate. So there is a massive role for men to play in talking about menstruation and engaging to help break the stigma. And we have young people, we have people who are promoting things like the menstrual cup, people who are educating, who are also looking at menstruation in a wider context of reproductive and sexual health. And in the filmmaking that we did, uh, we brought these uh, collaborative filmmakers from Western Nepal to Kathmandu to show their film. They engaged with policymakers, but they all spoke very articulately about at the start of the project, uh, they were shy to talk about menstruation, but now they are aware and they are educating others. So embedding all of the research and the creative methods at the local level has a very powerful um, effect. It's how you then get those action research techniques such as photo voice or photography or storytelling using art. How do you spread that? Because it does have a cost and funding is a big challenge. 
Thanks, sir. Okay, Madhu. I would like to add one more point. The government of Nepal has started uh, one skill, one nurse policy in Nepal. The one of the, the important objective of the uh, one school one nurse policy uh, is to sensitize the girls about the, the whole physiological processes of menstruation and then to minimize the dropout during the menstruation days. In Nepal, the nurse will be almost females. So it would be easier to discuss the these adolescent girls and um, the nurse about the, the menstruation and what can be done and then what, uh, for example, use of menstrual pads and management of menstrual pads. So uh, that would be one of the important contributions to minimize the stigma and discrimination. Can I also say the education toolkit which is being developed um, does have quite a strong focus looking at the school curriculum but we're also going to look to adapt that so that you can have a tool which advocacy um, activists can use because in some areas visual methods might work, in others street drama, um, in others you might want to show films. We've also used radio through Global Action Nepal and its network to get the messages out because um, Nepal is so diverse that you need to use multimedia means of connecting with people. And it is so important that the message isn't just educate the young girls who are menstruating. The boys need the knowledge um, so that they can then respect, support and care for people who are menstruating, um, however they identify, because it's not only women who menstruate. Um, so, yeah, I think that Creative means of engaging has been one of the strengths of the research project we've done. We've used art, film, um, we've had virtual art exhibitions. So it's about reaching the local community, but also the wider community as well. Thanks, Sarah. That's really interesting. And I see you have made many activities to implement the changes. So I hope the best for you to to really reinforce the changes in the country and to have a much more inclusive health system, leaving no one behind, especially women and the girls. So now back to B. So we are going to the last segment of the questions. Thank you. Thank you both so much. This has been such an interesting and wide ranging discussion. And I wanted to ask really what advice you might give to other researchers um, or activists working in the field of menstrual exclusion. What lessons can we learn from Nepal on how to do this work? Um, I think getting a grounding and training in collaborative participatory research tools and techniques is really important. Um, making sure that you listen um, and go with an open mind is really important. Um, I also find keeping diaries of your own reflections and own biases. Um, we've had really interesting experiences and workshops where we've shared our own practices, including my own. And especially for this project, I think um, because I'm so passionate about education and engaging with people, um, using art, using tools which create spaces for people to talk. Um, and that has been through art exhibitions. It's been through blog posts. It's been through creating these films with the collaborative filmmakers um, and also having a genuine connection with universities and working with experts like Madhu who have that depth of connection has been really important Um and the other thing I'd say as well, and this is more for people who are funding this type of research, 
Uh, the British Academy have been so good at giving us extra time because of the pandemic. Um, but what we need to look at now is, well, how do we, we're now at a stage of disseminating our findings and sharing it. You need to think about funding for that type of follow on um, funding to help people build on the work that they're doing rather than jumping onto the next project, you know, m making the most of sharing what we have. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. That's uh, academic research should not be done in, uh, in isolation, right? If we focus on this kind of collaborative research, engaging with the uh, local community people and sharing the findings with them and then tell them uh, what, uh, what can be done to improve these kind of practices that makes uh, some transformation, uh, social transformation. And then this is also a kind of capacity building of the local people. They will start to talk about the particular issue. And then at the, at the same time, if we develop a network with the policymakers, planners, uh, curriculum development group, so that we can put some of the important information in different curriculum of school levels, or even senior school levels, at the same time, if we can focus the the government people, policymakers and planners, what can change the harmful practices and then to encourage the um, you know beneficial practices. So uh, working together could play an important role for equity, social justice. And the latest thing that's going to be launched this month as part of menstrual um, hygiene day and menstrual month is they have all they've taken seven of our stories from one from each province and artists have created public art murals in Kathmandu which will have an augmented reality aspect so by linking with creative artists um, it helps to revision your narrative in an anonymous way you know um, and but get those messages and interaction so be open to working um, with people not just in academia is really important and likewise with the film we've shown it at the local level and we've shown it in Kathmandu but we're going to go re-back re to Kanchanpur because the women have said they want to show it to the policy makers in their own community because they wanted a heated debate about what more can be done to support them in their journey so yeah develop genuine connections yeah we have been learning so many things from the community not only uh, gaining the data, but learning from community, what can be done to change the community. Wonderful. Yeah. I think, as you say, there's obviously still changes to be made, but just hearing about this project, your whole approach with the creative elements and the policy elements and all of these different approaches that you're combining, the stakeholders you're engaging with, this genuine, genuine connections and collaborations that it's built on, it's really, really inspiring to hear about and... I just want to say a really big thank you, Madhi Sudan and Sarah, for coming to talk to us today. And there are a lot of projects and documents that um, Sarah and Madhu have mentioned, and those are going to be in the show notes so our listeners can follow those up. So thank you so much both. Thank you for inviting and sharing our ideas. Thank you. If, if anybody wants to get in touch, please do. Um, because even though the research project will come to a formal end, Dignity Without Danger and Dignified Menstruation is... It's something that we're both committed to and we'll continue to work on.